On behalf of the Economic History Department and the Africa Initiative at LSE, we'd like to welcome you all here today and to thank you very much for coming. Um, today's discussion is concerned with institutional legacies and African development and promises, I hope, to be a lively discussion between three experts in this area. We're very pleased to have with us James Robinson, who is David Florence Professor of Government at Harvard, Josephine Corey, who is Professor of History at the University of Rochester, and Gareth Austin, recently of LSE, but now Professor of International History at the Graduate Institute of International Develop and Development Studies in Geneva. Um, the way we propose to run this session is that each speaker will have around 10 minutes to make a short presentation. They will then respond to each other's comments and presentations, and we will then open up to questions, comments, and discussions from you all. So we would ask you, as you listen to the presentations, to think about what you would like to ask. And I'd like to ask Professor Robinson to start off. Okay. <coughs> uh, perfect. Thank, thanks very much. Everyone can hear that, can they? Okay. Good. Thank you very much. So, uh, so uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I was an undergraduate at the LSE, so I'm always very happy to be uh, to, to be back. So, what I wanted to talk about is um, something that sort of uh, I've been thinking about for a long time now, which is the sort of long-run dynamics of political centralization, and I'm going to talk a little bit about two hypotheses about the historical patterns of political centralization in Africa, and I'm even going to show you some regressions very briefly, and then I'll try to link it more to the question of institutional legacies and African development, and how this might be relevant for thinking about African development today. Okay, so... Uh, a lot of work trying to understand African development and poverty in Africa is about Africa's institutions, trying to understand its economic institutions, its political institutions, and today I'm going to talk a little bit about social institutions and how those things interact, and trying to understand how and when these institutions may have diverged from those in Eurasia and other parts of the world. And I think you know, one can discuss uh, the nature of lots of those institutions, economic institutions, political institutions, and when and why and whether they diverge from other parts of the world. But one fact that seems to me to be sort of important and which I'm going to focus on today is this issue of sort of centralized states. That if you look historically in Africa compared to Eurasia, it seems that with a few exceptions, the Nile Valley, uh, the Sahel in the kind of medieval period, few bits and pieces here and there, Zimbabwe or Aksum in Ethiopia, political centralization seems to sort of lag in Africa relative to Eurasia. Okay? So, so that's what I want to talk about. Okay? I'm going to try to talk about why that matters, I think, how that affects development today, and talk about two hypotheses which might explain why political centralization took a different path in Africa historically. Okay, so why is that important? Well, it's important because I think political centralization is probably very important for just 
creating an order and the set of rules necessary to have economic development. If you think about the British state in the 18th century, the British state didn't provide very, few, very many services or public goods. Nowadays, if you take a public finance class, you'll learn that the state is supposed to provide all these services and public goods. The British state didn't do that. It spent most of its money on the navy and the army, but it did provide a system of rules which pr produced order, a kind of very functional system of property rights, especially after 1688, which allowed the private sector to kind of get on with the job. So I think it did provide some basic rules that were very important in stimulating the Industrial Revolution and economic success in Britain. And I think one of the problems in Sub-Saharan Africa historically is the lack of such effective centralization has made it very difficult to create that set of rules that is important for development. So I'm not going to talk, I was going to talk about uh, building a railway in Mendeland, but I'm going to run out of time if I start talking about that. But this is just the south of Sierra Leone, where I've been doing a lot of work recently, and this is Arthur Abraham's reconstruction of what the state system looked like in the second half of the 19th century. But what I, what I wanted to talk about is these states are very recent, they're very unstable, they fluctuate, they're very kind of unbureaucratized. Okay? So uh, other parts of the world, you know, that... Uh, that uh, Gareth, for example, has studied in, Ga in the Ghana. Maybe there's something different. Uh, but, but, okay. So, what can explain delayed political centralization? So, here's two uh, hypotheses. One, which I probably in incorrectly attribute to Jared Diamond uh, in his book Guns, Germs, and Steel. So, Jared Diamond has an explanation for uh, why political centralization lagged in sub Saharan Africa. And that's this sort of geographical explanation that historically, Sub-Saharan Africa lacked animal and crop species which were domesticable, so herding and farming lagged the rest of the world. When they happened, they were less productive, so population density was low, and population density was low led to little specialization and absence of complex uh, centralized states. There's another view uh, which I attribute to, to the work of Jan van Sina and the, and the archaeologist Susan McIntosh, which takes a completely different point of view and says, Political power was very broadly distributed in African societies. And that was because of the nature of a bunch of different social institutions. And that made it extremely difficult to centralize power outside of a few areas like the Nile Valley. So political centralization is an ugly business. You know, it involves somebody essentially you know, building up institutions that usually at the expense of somebody else. It might come along with taxation and corvée labor and military recruitment and all sorts of other stuff and people grabbing assets at the expense of other people. So it's a sort of, I'm thinking of it as a kind of coercive process. And Vansina's view, Jan Vansina's view would be that coercive process couldn't get going in Africa okay, because of the nature of African society. Okay? Now, there's a bunch of other arguments you might make. You know, the disease environment or disease ecology might be important. Malaria, the tsetse fly, you couldn't use horses. Joe Miller, uh, the, the historian Joe Miller has argued that that's very crucial understanding state formation in Africa because horses and cavalry are an important part of one group of people dominating another group of people and building up a state. Okay, so, so think of these two hypotheses, the diamond hypothesis and the Vancina Macintosh hypothesis. Uh, what's the right way of thinking about this? Well, uh, I was going to pro I'm proposing an outrageous test of this using, uh, uh, using data from the standard cross-cultural sample. So if there's any anthropologists in the audience, they're probably about to keel over in outrage that someone's going to come and do a statistical analysis using the standard cross-cultural sample. I, I, I won't talk about it now. This is data 
started off by George Murdoch at Yale in the 1940s, trying to code different aspects of uh, social, political, economic institutions in uh, uh, primitive and inverted commas societies around the world. Okay, so uh, we can talk about the data if somebody wants to ask me. Uh, and I'm not going to make any causal claim about this is causing that or that is causing something else. I just want to look at the correlations in the data and sort of ask, does this data look consistent with the diamond view of the world, this geographical determinism, or is it consistent with the Van Cena Macintosh view of the world that absence of political centralization in Africa is due to, this, due to the fact that some social institutions mean that political power is very broadly uh, distributed. Okay, so the dependent variable is just a simple measure of political centralization. Uh, they call it levels of sovereignty. Uh, diamonds, I can measure diamonds, I can measure agricultural potential. So you can look at lots of different measures of farming and herding, but I'm just going to show you something with a very simple measure which, which they capture sort of agricultural potential, so it's like soil quality, climate, rainfall, etc. And I'm going to control for malaria and uh, the presence of the tsetse fly also, uh, since that maybe that's important for population density and state centralization and horses and etc. Okay? And so that's my diamond explanatory variable. And what about my Vancina Macintosh explanatory variable? So there's lots of different candidates for what social institutions might have been important, but a lot of the emphasis is on what a political scientist would call cross-cutting cross cleavages. So these are social institutions like uh, in you know, Mendeland, for example, secret societies, uh, age sets, uh, titling societies, various types of kinship and ritual organizations that distribute power in society in such a way as to inhibit political leaders from creating these centralized states. Okay? So uh, the standard cross-cultural sample has data on all of these. Uh, uh, well, not all of them. There's missing variables, missing data. But it tried to code the extent to which these different cross-cutting ties are important in different societies. Okay? So what does the data say? Well, here's... Uh, sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't show this. I can just... There's the regressions. I could just tell you what the regressions say. The regressions actually, so this is the whole world, this is not just sub-Saharan Africa. The regressions suggest that there's very little correlation between agricultural population and state centralization. This is actually an old theme in African studies. If you go back to uh, Fortis and Evans Pritchard's book uh, 1940 on African political systems, there's actually a lot of discussion of the relationship between population density and state centralization in Africa. So this is not a new theme. Uh, and there's very little evidence for a relationship between the disease environment measured in this crude way and state centralization. But what you do find are some fairly robust correlations between, uh, for example, the presence of these age sets, age organizations, and kinship organizations. They tend to be negatively correlated with political centralization, just as Van Cena would have predicted. And I also here look at a lot of the interactions, because what's sort of particularly interesting from a theoretical point of view is not just these things existing in isolation, but them coming as a bundle. And when they come as a bundle, that's actually much more powerfully negatively correlated with uh, state centralization. So if you interact age, kinship, and witchcraft for the economists, econometricians in the audience, uh, that tends to be robustly negatively correlated with state centralization. Okay? So this is just a, just a kind of merest hint of evidence 
But, but it seems that what's interesting about this, the data is more consistent with this Vancina Macintosh view of African society as uh, uh, inhibiting the nature of African social institutions as inhibiting state centralization than this simple geographical uh, determinism. Now, that, of course, has a sort of interesting implication. I thought I should have a provocative implication, which is that if you think of state centralization as being, you know, everyone talks about Africa as a, a sort of development failure, but actually this isn't a story about development failure. This is a story of success because it suggests that historically Africans were able to, African societies were able to resist the tyrannical creation of centralized states much more effectively than people in other parts of the world. Now, of course, that turned out to have bad effects when Europeans industrialized and got you know, machine guns and uh, colonized the world. But up until the last 250 years, the pattern of state centralization in sub-Saharan Africa might actually be associated with greater human welfare than the patterns of state centralization elsewhere in the world. I think that's a view that uh, James Scott, for example, at Yale uh, has argued that in the context of mainland Southeast Asia in his book, The Art of Not Being Governed. So it's a very similar, he doesn't make any connection to the African material, but it's a very similar type of argument. So what's the consequences of that? I'm probably minus something, am I? Am I? No, I have two minutes. Good grief. Okay. So, so I can relax. Okay. No. So what's the consequences of that? So that's a sort of historical argument. What's the consequences of that for African societies today? Well, I think the consequence was, of course, that, you know, I mean, I guess what's the important consequence today is that those features potentially of African societies are, you know, no doubt changing, no doubt they changed in the colonial period, but for example, if you go to Mendeland today, the Poro societies, which are these secret societies, are still incredibly uh, active uh, in all sorts of things, in allocating land, in determining, you know, who becomes paramount chief, in, in, in influencing the distribution of power and authority in society. So those institutions didn't go away in the colonial period, and they may still be important in in making it difficult to construct uh, centralized states today, and maybe that's important for understanding development sort of possibilities or development constraints in Africa. A lot of the literature on civil wars, is, you know, civil wars are nothing if not a kind of problem of you know, state centralization, the lack of centralized authority or at least legitimate authority. And so I guess the hypothesis I'm trying to think about here is, is how is that linked to the structure of uh, African societies. So, let me shut up. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> okay. Professor Inigori. Okay. All right. Oh. <laughs> you have you have slides, Joseph. Uh, uh, I I wasn't. Uh, okay. You just have slides. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I I would have loved slides because that would have reduced uh, my problem. Uh, uh, now, uh, it, it's very good that I'm uh, following uh, 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 James because uh, he's put forward uh, uh, a structured uh, hypothesis. Uh, but uh, as uh, uh, a historian, I, I, I like structures, I like models, and I do use models, I do use structures, uh, but I, I'm far more concerned uh, with the actual facts, uh, how were they... <laughs> How, how, how the historical process evolved over time. Uh, and uh, what I have really seen uh, about um, uh, African economic history, African political history, as we talk about the present, 
uh, is uh, our inability really to go back to the Atlantic slave trade and uh, follow what the Atlantic slave trade did to the African long-run historical process that will enable us to understand why Africa is particularly different uh, from other major regions of the world. Uh, one important point I want to make uh, before I really get into uh, much of what I want to say uh, is the uh, uh, element of uh, uh, ethno-linguistic fra uh, fractionalization. Sub-Saharan Africa is the most ethno-linguistically fractionalized region of the world. Uh, political scientists and historians have not really uh, explained why is it uh, that uh, sub-Saharan Africa is so ethno-linguistically fractionalized. And it is only yeah, recently yeah, now that uh, economists, uh, you working uh, with um, uh, the framework uh, of uh, institutional economics uh, are beginning to look at what the Atlantic slave trade did uh, to, to create the kind of environment uh, in which you have uh, a lot of uh, uh, ethnic uh, groups uh, as opposed to uh, a process of integration uh, that uh, reduced uh, the, the number of uh, uh, ethno-linguistic groups uh, in the rest uh, of the world. So what I really uh, uh, want to say, and there is not much time to say it, to start off by saying that we really need to wear uh, 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 research uh, the uh, consequences of the Atlantic slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, that we really need to do more work uh, to research it uh, in order to uh, understand what makes uh, Sub-Saharan Africa so different. Two things uh, that you need to remember. One is that there is no other region in the world, no other region in the world that had this major external impact the Atlantic slave trade, colonialism. You can find the element of colonialism spread across the globe. Almost every region of the world can be seen to have, at one point or another, been subjected to external colonialism. But there's no other major region of the world that was subjected to something like the Atlantic slave trade for almost 300 years and within a short interval of uh, the Atlantic slave trade ending, then came colonialism. Now that is something that you will not find anywhere else other than sub-Saharan Africa. I don't have much time to elaborate on this. So what I want to do is simply uh, highlight uh, some points uh, for a subsequent uh, discussion. Uh, and my first point to, to make here is what was happening, say, around 1450, uh, when uh, the, uh, uh, the Europeans arrived uh, on uh, the West African coast, 1450. 1450, what you find is that, uh, a process of integration, a process of commercial, cultural, and political integration uh, that had uh, been on for centuries before 1450, that process was gathering momentum. That process was centered around the Niger Bend, the area of West Africa we call the Niger Bend, or the Middle Niger. Now that is the center of what I describe as a regionally based West African globalization, a process of globalization by which I mean 
much of West Africa being brought together were through commerce, uh, through cultural integration, uh, uh, through uh, political uh, uh, processes. Now that process was on uh, when the uh, uh, Europeans uh, arrived uh, in uh, the middle of uh, the uh, 15th century. Now that process was characterized by a number of uh, major uh, developments. One, a slow and steady development of markets and the geographical spread of the market economy. Now that process uh, was on. And two, growing intensity uh, of commercial and socioeconomic interaction and the integration and enlargement of cultural and linguistic groups. A lot of the ethnic groups that you find uh, in West Africa today, uh, uh, politicians will want to find a way of uh, saying that there is um, uh, somebody called uh, Odudua, uh, who was the, uh, the father of all Yoruba people. Now, politicians are free to do that, but historians are not free to do that. Uh, what you find today as the Yoruba ethnic group uh, did not come from one single stock. Uh, the Yoruba ethnic group uh, grew out of uh, cultural interaction, uh, commercial interaction, and uh, brought different groups uh, together. Now, that process was still going on uh, by the year 16th century, by the 17th century, uh, as I talk about uh, this uh, process of what I describe as a regionally based globalization process uh, that was on uh, at the time. Uh, and uh, one major characteristic of this process during the period, uh, increasing enlargement of state systems such as ancient Ghana, Mali, Songhai, Kanem, Borno, Ile, Ife, Benin, Congo, and others. Now, these states were developing uh, the, the, the entire process and uh, they were getting larger. And what you find in the whole process is that uh, later on, the kind of size that you have uh, for well, states like the Mali, states like Songhai, you don't have any state as large as that by the time you get to the 19th century. Now, that is something we need to understand. And my major uh, point uh, here is that this process that was on and the Europeans arrived at the time, in the, initially, the Europeans tended to contribute to the process as the, the emphasis of the trade of the period was on product rather than humans. Uh, now, that trade for almost uh, 200 years in some places uh, like uh, Ghana, uh, what was then uh, the uh, Gold Coast, now in places like that, uh, the early product in trade, uh, uh, the early uh, trade in product, uh, tended to actually uh, 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 quicken the pace uh, of uh, the, uh, the process of integration uh, commercially, economically, politically that I'm uh, talking about. But then uh, came uh, the Atlantic slave trade. What did the Atlantic slave trade do? The Atlantic slave trade, based on humans, based on the capture of humans for export, created violence, created conflict, created wars. And these conflicts constrained the ongoing process of uh, commercial integration, the ongoing process of cultural integration. Now, all of that process was constrained. And uh, what uh, economic uh, historians would uh, describe uh, as uh, uh, raising the, uh, the marginal cost, raising the marginal cost of state expansion with all the violence, with all the conflict, Expanding states became something very difficult. States found it difficult to uh, effectively organize large territorial te uh, uh, states. 
So that is a major element that we need to look at when we talk about um, uh, the uh, small size uh, of uh, African states. The other important uh, constraint uh, that followed the Atlantic slave trade, the earlier process of uh, cultural and linguistic integration was also were severely disrupted. So for about 200 years, from uh, uh, 1650 or thereabout to the uh, middle of the 19th century, when uh, the, uh, the, the transatlantic slave trade became effectively uh, 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 ended, you had that long period uh, during which commercial interaction, political interaction, cultural interaction were all constrained by the violence uh, of uh, the Atlantic slave trade. So by the time you get to the late 19th century, the, 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 the ethnic uh, conglomeration, uh, the, the situation with the ethnic uh, groups had almost been frozen. So integration had been stopped. And therefore, by the time colonial rule started, Western Africa and much of Sub-Saharan Africa was characterized by a multiplicity uh, of uh, uh, ethnic groups. And this created a very powerful environment for the kind of colonial policies adopted either by the British or by others, divide and rule, take advantage of these various ethnic groups, the multiplicity of ethnic groups, apply the strategy of a divide and rule, and that did work and work very well. Uh, you, then, you then have uh, a situation uh, in which uh, the uh, ethnic uh, groups uh, were categorized. If you take the example of Nigeria, uh, the ethnic uh, groups there were, uh, were, were categorized uh, by the British uh, colonial government uh, into uh, superior ethnic groups and inferior ethnic groups. And, and these uh, superior and inferior ethnic groups uh, were made to compete uh, for colonial favors. And, and gradually, uh, uh, actually, uh, 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 making uh, ethnicity a, a major issue uh, uh, in the colonial period. Uh, in, in the second part of the discussion, I'm going to find, find a way of showing how uh, this kind of situation uh, that uh, 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 conditioned uh, the development uh, of uh, colonial rule and colonial policies, how it worked itself out uh, with all of uh, the practices adopted by colonialism uh, into the period of uh, decolonization uh, when uh, the uh, British uh, government embarked uh, upon a federal system uh, with uh, three regions, a federal system in which one of the federated units was larger than all the other two put together. And in each of these uh, three regions uh, that constituted the federation, one ethnic group uh, was particularly dominant in the, in the east, it was the Igbo. Uh, in uh, the west, it was the Yoruba. Uh, in the north, it was a combination of the Fulani and the uh, Hausa. Uh, and that kind of combination uh, essentially created the, what I have always described as an ethnic uh, political market uh, that tended uh, to uh, uh, further aggravate uh, the, the kind uh, of ethnic uh, politics uh, uh, that uh, had uh, been uh, developed uh, through a combination of the legacy of the Atlantic slave trade and the specific policies adopted uh, by uh, the, the colonial uh, governments. Uh, what happened in uh, Nigeria was not unique to Nigeria. You will find that replicated uh, in all that uh, colonial territories. I just hope uh, there will be enough time later on uh, to expand on some of these issues. Mm -hmm.
I have brought a, a PowerPoint, but I threw out the numbers that I'd originally included in it in order to get it down to um, the required length. But I'll still keep it for two reasons. One it, it being that it may help you follow the structure, and the other because it enabled me to choose a background which at the bottom reminds us of the hostility of the African environment to economic development uh, in many ways, something that uh, we shouldn't forget when we focus on institutions. Sorry, I'm having some slight difficulty. The Irish don't. Oh, sorry, they do work. Yes, I beg your pardon. Thanks. My first proposition, you'll see that I, I actually took the, the title of the session as my title. The first proposition I want to make is simply that the institutions characteristic of late pre-colonial Africa, say 16th, 17th, 18th, and most of the 19th century, can be best understood as responses to the available resources, and in particular the ratio between land and labor. So that where you had abundant land, albeit often land that wasn't um, capable of facilitating intensive agriculture, but abundant land in relation to labor, there it was more important to have property in people than property in things. Hence, the property rights in people, including slavery, tended to be more sharply defined than those in land, and inheritance systems tended to give a little to a lot of people, to be diverging rather than converging, uh, as in the Eurasian pattern. And, as James was saying, political centralization was relatively easy to resist. For the colonial period, I, I want to remind you of a basic distinction that between the so-called settler colonies and the even more so-called peasant colonies, defined by the extent to which land was appropriated for European use. And that's a very stark contrast in, in many cases, and I think a very important one. Uh, sorry. Because the colonial governments were obligated to abolish slavery, although many of them took 20 or 30 years about it, they had to find other means of solving the fundamental problem of being an employer in a land surplus economy, namely how to get the labor force and get it sufficiently cheaply. And peasant colonies adopted the policy of encouraging African agriculture on the whole in the hope that that would generate enough cash income to employ some people, while on the whole anyway uh, being perfectly happy not to have a very lively labor market. In the settler and plantation economies you have the appropriation of land above all to try to force Africans out of the produce market and into the labor market. And those legacies are still apparent today if you look at the work of Paul Mosley and others on the welfare of former settler colonies and former peasant colonies 
and you look at the work of Jordan and others on the uh, inheritance for manufacturing, um, on the whole, the settler and peasant colonies uh, favoured relatively precocious growth of manufacturing, but produced not only more unequal societies, but societies in which African wages took longer to begin to rise at all, and then they then rose in a less sustained fashion, and Africans owned far less of the assets. We've had, over the last 100 and 150 years, two major forces transforming most of Africa in a way that clearly alters the environment for institutions. Um, one of them that's a specifically 20th century phenomenon is the growth of population, which has been continuous, uh, depending on where you're talking about, since the 1920s, 1930s. And that removes the fundamental characteristic of the pre-colonial economies, the shortage of people. The other thing is the growth of the area under cultivation, not only to feed people, but also for export agriculture, something that began before colonial rule in the case of West Africa. Um, on an evolutionary theory, whether in the rational choice version or in the Marxist version, um, those kind of changes ought to produce radical changes to the institutions. So you, you would expect to get, I think, uh, the, this series of changes that I've outlined here. So let's ask whether those predictable changes actually occurred. Slavery to wage labor mainly did occur in the sense not only was slavery made illegal, but you do see a major growth of wage labor during and since the colonial period. You also get some shift in the direction of more individualized land tenure, although it's important to remember that even in pre-colonial land tenure, individuals very often had, in, had access as individuals to land at the point of production, even if they couldn't pass it on as individuals. Um, you've also seen changes in inheritance systems. Increasingly, the inheritance goes within the nuclear family rather than more widely. And as for states, you have not only states on paper, but also everywhere, but also governments which clearly have more resources today uh, than they did in most cases in the 19th century. At the same time, we must remember that several people in this institution have been studying failed states in Africa as elsewhere, and there certainly are a number of African states um, which are not uh, very strong un under any definition. Does this matter? for economic development? Is it important for African prosperity to, as it were, complete the transition to capitalist institutions and stronger states? There are some reasons for doubting that. If I just take the example of land tenure, you could make the argument, if it ain't bust, don't fix it. Uh, referring to such cases as the creation of the Ghanaian cocoa industry in the space of 20 years from exporting nothing to becoming the largest exporter in the world, and the two subsequent booms in Ghanaian cocoa farming, including the one uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, all these were taking place under a system of land tenure not that much changed since pre-colonial times. Uh, and again, Compulsory land registration uh, is supposed to reduce transactions costs, but in the short run and in the medium run, it almost certainly increases them because of the storm of litigation that uh, it provokes. And even when implemented, it may still not be sufficient 
to persuade banks to lend to small farmers, one of the basic reasons for adopting it. Um, on the other hand, um, one should, all, again, or I should say rather than on the other hand, one should also remember that the post-colonial economic record is not actually as bad over the period as a whole, as is often said. Not only have you had advances in education and uh, child mortality, etc., etc., but also uh, the failure, the, the, the growth tragedy that we've heard a lot about is mainly concentrated in the 20 years from the mid-70s to the mid-90s. Before that, African economies on the whole were growing in per capita terms. And since the mid-90s, they've been growing at 4 to 5% a year. Not per capita, but it's faster than population. But ultimately, yes, I do think that there is uh, a lot to be gained by completing at least some of those transitions. Uh, Udry and Goldstein have a very ingenious study of the effects of insecure property rights upon investment in southern Ghanaian food production for the market, which I think does demonstrate what is more commonly asserted rather than shown, that secure pro property rights do indeed encourage higher investment. And again, if one looked at one of the most striking phenomena in African business history, um, one would notice that the, the notice the relative rarity of firms that survive their founders in contrast to Eurasia. And although the most obvious explanation of that is a very volatile and risky business environment, it could also be that the inheritance system has something to do with it. Uh, so that even in a society which values family as much as African societies do, it's actually harder to sustain businesses on, family, on a family basis over the generations. Um, getting towards the end, let me just remind us that other things matter besides institutions. So if you're talking about agriculture, the Gates Foundation and international NGOs are very much encouraging efforts to raise productivity through, through fertilizers and uh, hybrid and high-yielding varieties. But unfortunately, these are all energy-intensive and water-intensive solutions, exactly two commodities that are predicted to be becoming scarcer and more expensive in Africa. So I think the, the jury is very much out on how far that's possible, but that is critical, that technical issue. And again, industrialization. The transformation in the labor-land ratio in Africa, in the long run, combined with investment in education since independence, ought to create the possibility of the flying geese of Asia extending to Africa. In other words, of labor-intensive industrialization, at least in certain African economies. That uh, is certainly not something that's happened very much, except perhaps in Mauritius and one or two little parts of Ghana and Nigeria. Um, but finally, if institutions need changing, um, how does this happen? It's very important to remember Africa is far from static, including in its institutions. The very fact that more than 30 countries adopted structural adjustment, let's think about what structural adjustment fundamentally was. It was a transfer, it was a shift of the mechanism of resource allocation from administration to the market in the usual way that economic rent is defined. By definition, that should have reduced economic rents, except in the case of privatizations. 
So that's a very important change. And the agents of change have not only been international pressure and governments, they've also come from below. So I give three examples here, and I'll just mention one of them orally, and that's the middle one. Structural adjustment is often said to have been forced upon Africa by the international financial institutions. And of course, there's quite a bit of truth in that. But it's not the whole story. The other thing we must remember is that African governments had increasingly little room for manoeuvre because of the tax revolts that they faced through the spontaneous boycott of official markets by millions of traders and producers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I wonder if I could ask you all to respond briefly to what you have heard. James, may I ask you? Uh, uh, yes, so I, I, was, I was trying to tell a sort of very long-run argument about political centralization. I think that I wouldn't, for a second, uh, and I try to get there at the end, I think that I wouldn't for a second deny the importance of the Atlantic slave trade or colonialism. But it seems to me that's sort of part of a path-dependent process of uh, institutional development or development more broadly in African societies that goes back before the, before the, uh, before the start of the Atlantic slave trade. So, 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 so I'm sure that, I mean, I guess one thing that always strikes me is that Yes, it's clear that the Atlantic slave trade had a huge impact on societies in large parts of West Africa and Western Central Africa, but you also see very similar sort of political dynamics in parts of the continent. Uh, I'm thinking of sort of Van Sina's reconstruction of the political history of the Congo Basin, which were much less heavily affected by the slave trade than, say, you know, uh, uh, coastal coastal West Africa. So, so, so I'm sure that played an important role, you know, but there's also, you know, wanted to be devil's advocate. You know, if you think about one of the most bureaucratized African states, which would be Ashanti, you know, that Ivor Wilkes even tried to kind of portray as a Weberian uh, bureaucracy, that was a state in some sense that was created by the slave trade. So, so, so the slave trade created this uh, sort of dynamic of centralization or incentive to centralization. They even built roads and public goods and all sorts of things. So, so I'm only, I only kind of half mean that, but, 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 but you know, one could play devil's advocate on the impact of the slave trade on state formation uh, also, although you know, that, that's also led to the destruction of other states like the Congo, I guess you could say. Uh, so I, you know, and I certainly think that colonialism also had an enormously powerful effect in shaping the very dysfunctional nature of uh, uh, politics in Africa since independence and all of the obvious consequences for development. So let me give kind of two ways of thinking about that. One is, you know, creating these very arbitrary uh, countries made it even more difficult to solve this problem of creating uh, states. You know, you take a country like Sierra Leone, where, you know, there was certainly a process of nascent state formation taking place historically, uh, but suddenly all of these different people speaking different languages with different histories, different social institutions, were all thrown together into one country, and, and, and somebody was parachuted on top and made prime minister with these national institutions that people may or may not have identified with. I think that made it much more difficult to, to create kind of order. It's a very interesting comparison with Latin America, actually. If you look at Latin America, 
in the 50 years after independence in the 19th century, something very similar happens, that Latin American countries inherited these relatively arbitrary, I mean, they'd been in place for longer than most of these African colonial boundaries, but they inherited these relatively arbitrary uh, colonial boundaries from the Spanish colonial empire, and there was 50 years of intense conflict and warfare, you know, while states tried to get established patterns of authority and rules, you know, uh, came to be agreed on. So there was enormous instability in Mexico, in Colombia, in Argentina, in Peru, all of these places. So, so, so that's a sort of, you know, and of course that went along with severe economic decline at the same time. So actually one can make sort of interesting analogies between that period after colonialism in Latin America and after sub-Saharan Africa. And of course, you know, you could think of that as being optimistic or pessimistic in the sense that after 50 years, Latin America, 50 or 60 years, Latin American countries sort of got their act together and, you know, centralized authority emerged and the economy started growing. But it's also true, of course, that it grew, but in a sort of, in some way, in a, in a disappointing way, you know, in the sense that living standards improved over time, but even over the last 130, 140 years, there's no convergence of Latin American countries to, uh, to, you know, to living standards in Western Europe or, or North America. So, so there, was a, there was a transition to a much better growth path, but it was still a disappointing growth path. You didn't have the kind of economic convergence that you see in East Asia taking place in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, for example. So I think so that, that, that you could say the arbitrary state boundaries is one important legacy of colonialism. I think also there's much more direct analogies between the way colonial societies were governed and organized uh, and the way post-colonial societies were governed and organized. And Sierra Leone is actually a sort of fabulous example of that, that, that when the British created uh, this protectorate in 1896, they set up this process, they created this system of indirect rule based on these uh, paramount chiefs. And the way that the institutions of paramount chiefs were set up was kind of resonates enormously with post-independence politics in Sierra Leone. Paramount chiefs were elected, but in this very kind of elitist, uh, cronyistic, corrupt electoral system uh, with you know, lots of buying votes and all sorts of other stuff going on. Uh, and they were elected for life, you know, so paramount chiefs want to stay in for life. They have this very, you know, kind of cronyistic ele electoral system. Uh, you know, the people, many of the people who are created by the British, so the British would parachute in loyal people to be paramount chiefs, like the Margais. The Margais, the first two prime ministers after independence in Sierra Leone, uh, Sir Milton Margais, Sir Albert Margais, the Margais were a kind of creation of the British. They were made paramount chiefs after the Hutt Tax Rebellion in 1898 because they sided with the British against local chiefs who joined the rebellion. So they were, they were creations of the British. They, they ran the country after independence, and they ran it in a way which was closely based on those institutions. So, for example, members of parliament in Sierra Leone were elected from paramount chieftaincies. So the, the, the constituency of a member of parliament was the chieftaincy. So many of the sort of de jure and de facto structures of politics from the colonial period mapped very much into how post-independence uh, post Sierra Leone functioned. And that was a, you know, this was not a democratic system. It was not a, you know, well, it was subject to some constraints. Uh, but, but, you know, that's, a, you know, that's another way of thinking about how how the, how the structure of authority and politics in the colonial period had a huge impact on the structure and politics in the kind of post-colonial period. And yes, I think Gareth is right, that stuff is changing. You know, democracy, uh, albeit you know, low quality in lots of cases, democracy has come, uh, there's been all sorts of 
there's been all sorts of change, uh, and I think lots of good things are going on as well. But but I think there are kind of real senses in which that 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 that, that part there's that path dependent legacy. So I suppose said too much. So. Thank you. Yeah. Joseph. Okay. The, the, the first thing that we must bear in mind is that state systems are all historical products. Integration, the process of integration is historical. If you go back to history, you would find that you everywhere, every region has this problem of multiplicity of small uh, ethno-linguistic groups. If you even look at the United Kingdom, the counties that you have today, we are kingdoms. These counties were more or less separate, they were different before, before, before where the, uh, uh, the 1066 uh, 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 invasion and the centralization process, these were separate entities uh, that uh, were fighting one with another. So we need to understand the history that in the end produced England as a nation state. It did not just fall from heaven. <laughs> and that kind of comparative view of history is what we need in order to understand the situation in sub-Saharan Africa. What in the historical process prevented the normal process of integration that we can observe in all other parts of the world from continuing. And one is making a case for the slave trade in the sense that we got to a point where the process, the historical process was frozen. And when we say the historical process was frozen, it doesn't really have to be uh, uh, that uh, there were areas of Africa that were not involved in the Atlantic slave trade. Yes, there are such areas. But if the historical process that was frozen was not frozen, those areas would have become part of the whole process of integration that was on in 1450. If you look at, uh, I, I, I would have, uh, if I knew that we were going to have uh, the PowerPoint uh, facilities, uh, I, I would have brought um, uh, some of the uh, maps uh, that I have uh, showing this process of integration that was centered around uh, the uh, Niger Bend. The Niger Bend was a major source of cultural, economic, and political integration that was spreading to the rest of Western Africa. How come you have, for instance, an ethnic group, the Hausa and the Fulani in Nigeria? The Hausa and the Fulani in Nigeria today are more or less one single ethnic group. They've become so integrated culturally, language, and everything that Nigerians prefer to call them as a kind of um, a hyphenated ethnic group, uh, Hausa Fulani. Now, why was that possible in that area? And much of that was not replicated in other parts uh, of uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Now, that is the kind of thing I'm talking about. The very process that was bringing that kind of development uh, was frozen at some point, and the Atlantic slave trade was central to it. Why was Ashanti so small? In Ghana today, if you look at the areas of Ghana today, yeah, that were part of the Ashanti state, 
probably less than half. As small as, as, as Ghana is, Ashanti was even far smaller than what Ghana is today. So why wasn't Ashanti able to get all of the territory here in, in, in Ghana into one single state system? Why wasn't it possible for Ashanti to, uh, in fact, expand beyond uh, Ghana and, and bring in other territories within the Ashanti state system? And the point that I was making earlier, earlier on is that the Atlantic slave trade created an environment in which the marginal cost of state expansion was very high. I'm sure a lot of you here will have uh, some uh, knowledge of uh, economics to understand what we mean by marginal cost. Uh, you get to a point uh, where it becomes so expensive to go beyond the size that you have and it becomes more economic for you to remain with the size you have instead of expanding. And this is the kind of situation one is describing uh, that the Atlantic slave trade raised the marginal cost of state expansion. Now, I do have a lot of quarrel with the geography-based arguments. Uh, and uh, I just want to raise a general question. Was the geography that prevented capitalist development in Africa was it geography that prevented the, the development of commercial agriculture in Africa? There are a lot of historians who would believe, a lot of scholars who would believe uh, that it was the geography uh, that prevented the uh, large-scale commercial agriculture from developing, uh, that uh, the quality of the soil uh, cannot uh, withstand intensive agriculture, and therefore uh, what is described as uh, expansive agriculture uh, was uh, a product uh, of uh, the quality of the soil. Now that is something that soil scientists today uh, will say is fallacious, so correct. Uh, the uh, African agricultural soils, uh, 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 the, the soils in Africa are not so bad that they cannot withstand intensive agriculture. They can withstand intensive agriculture. I just want to mention uh, a few of these. Rather than uh, spend too much time uh, 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 on, on other things, I just want to talk about this agricultural problem, the geography, uh, the way uh, uh, recent uh, 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 scholars uh, uh, talk, talk about it. Now, there is this International Institute uh, of uh, Tropical Agriculture that is located uh, uh, at Ibadan, and they've been conducting a lot of studies. These are soil scientists. Uh, and uh, one of their major uh, publications uh, has uh, this uh, to say. Although some areas are densely populated, the overall pressure on the land in sub-Saharan Africa is low and the application of inputs is minimal. The use of inputs is higher where the crops are grown for exports. Against this background, Biswanger and Pingali uh, provided a framework uh, for making choices about technological priorities uh, for farming in sub-Saharan Africa. Only when land becomes scarcer will uh, yield raising and land saving strategies uh, become uh, attractive. Green revolution uh, techniques uh, are unlikely to succeed where land is still abundant and market access is poor. The transition to high input farming will not uh, be made uh, if it is not competitive uh, with shifting uh, uh, cultivation. And, and it goes on. So the question becomes, why is the population density low? 
The population density is low because of the Atlantic slave trade. <laughs> and so the, 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 the whole problem of commercial agriculture, the fact that you really don't have uh, before the period of colonialism, the very fact that you don't have a large-scale commercial agriculture, it is not because the agricultural land is not good enough to sustain that intensive kind of cultivation, but simply because uh, the, the population was so low uh, that other techniques are more productive, are more economic uh, than uh, the uh, uh, back-breaking uh, intensive uh, system uh, of uh, agriculture. Uh, and we can expand that. The other thing I just want to talk about very quickly before two, we're two, two, two minutes. minutes. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, it's ethnicity. Ethnicity. I talked about uh, ethnicity earlier on and the problem uh, that it has uh, created and the role of colonialism. So here, the problem of ethnicity really is more uh, a combination of uh, what uh, the Atlantic slave trade created, uh, taken over by uh, colonialism, and the two relating together were creating a new situation, a new element uh, that impeded uh, development, uh, as I would argue. Uh, and uh, the, the Nigerian example uh, that I gave uh, earlier on, if you look at recent uh, developments, you can easily see uh, why colonialism was so central to the problem created. Since uh, colonialism, uh, the Nigerians uh, struggling uh, to uh, create a better environment uh, for development uh, have been expanding uh, the state system. In the place of the three regions uh, that uh, were created by colonialism, today we have 36 states in Nigeria. And with these 36 states, the kind of politics uh, uh, that uh, took uh, ethnicity uh, as a winning combination, that is no longer a winning combination. And uh, the aristocracy uh, that had benefited uh, from uh, the colonial structure has lost uh, its uh, uh, monopoly of uh, the Nigerian uh, political system. And uh, you can understand why today uh, the possibility uh, of a minority man, somebody from uh, uh, the minority uh, in uh, the minorities in the Delta uh, region, uh, winning the primary for the major political party in Nigeria, and a lot of people in the north are voting for him as opposed to voting for a northerner. Now, this is a development that I can explain in terms of the new structures uh, that have been put in place uh, by uh, Nigerians. And I'm happy to say that uh, I did contribute a little bit to that <laughs> because in 1987, uh, I was appointed uh, by Babangida to chair uh, a panel uh, and that uh, was uh, uh, given the responsibility of uh, uh, recommending uh, a system uh, that will deal uh, with this uh, fractionalization thing I talked about. And we recommended a zoning system. That zoning system was not accepted uh, by Babangida, but the parties that came after Babangida have tried to implement the zoning system. And some of what you've seen in Nigeria today uh, is a product of the zoning system. Thank you. Gareth, a few comments, and then we'll open it up to questions. Thanks. Well, since um, my friend Joseph has uh, contradicted some of the things that I've said in print, I think I'd better uh, respond to him first before commenting also on uh, Jim's remarks. Uh, by the way, I should just say, um, I, I don't know whether this is um, uh, anything to be proud of uh, in the Asante case, but of course the Asante kingdom did at one point cover basically the, the whole of modern Ghana and quite a bit of Cote d'Ivoire. The difference is 
that the outerlying areas were incorporated as tributaries. So it's certainly true that the heartland was, uh, as it were, some more, more, like, more the size of Wales and a, and a half rather than of the United Kingdom as a whole. But uh, at its greatest extent, I mean, in, in 1807, for example, um, uh, it did cover uh, a, a pretty large area. But um, the more general, general point, I entirely accept that pre-colonial states tended to be uh, relatively small, with some exceptions. Um, I think, uh, let me start with productivity. Um, the, we've only mentioned so far the Atlantic slave trade, but as most people in the room will know, uh, there were also slave trades from the East African coast, across the Red Sea, and across the Sahara. Uh, it seems to me what is definitely unique about Africa's involvement in the world history of slavery, slavery is that it was the uh, center of slave exporting for longer than any other part of the world. Uh, it may very well also be the case that the Atlantic slave trade was the most intense large-scale uh, slave trade, though I would mention there is this book by Clarence Smith uh, recently that um, produces very large numbers for the slave trade into the Ottoman and other uh, Muslim territories, particularly from Europe. And as we both know, um, there was also significant slave trade from uh, in England and indeed from Britain as a whole and Ireland uh, in the period uh, just after the Romans left. Um, but, uh, uh, but certainly that didn't last uh, uh, nearly as long as the Atlantic trade. But the point I'm coming to is that the economic basis of this sustained slave trading uh, was surely that African labor was more productive outside Africa than inside. Not necessarily in all cases, but that was the basic economic logic of slavery as a system of production. Of course, there are other forms of slavery. Slavery in the Nile Valley was more about the, the military. Um, but it seems to me that that's a point that's extremely hard to, to, to get round. And that uh, suggests to me that there has been a, a longer-term continuity in African relative poverty, which doesn't contradict the proposition that Africa may have been more prosperous, say, than, than North America. And it also doesn't contradict the proposition that if you were living in a stateless society, in some ways your quality of life might have been much higher. Uh, than in a, in a large state, irrespective of productivity. But let me, one of the reasons for low productivity um, lay on the manufacturing side, but because of time, let, let me uh, focus on agriculture, which uh, Joseph's been talking about. Um, I agree with every sentence in the passage uh, that, um, that, that you quoted. Um, ben Swanger, of course, is an economist uh, rather than a soil scientist, and um, as a matter of fact, the, um, if you think of the uh, literature on the scientific literature on African agriculture um, relating to uh, uh, fallowing, for example, um, you have the proposition that the most efficient method of restoring fertility in the forest zone of West Africa is still leaving the land to lie fallow. Now, what would change that? What would make intensive agriculture pay? was if you could use fertilizers on a large scale, but then you've got to pay for them. So we come to this basic proposition that in the pre-colonial context, 
particularly given that you could not use large animals and therefore animal manure over much of the continent because of trypanosomiasis. It was extremely hard um, work to, to do intensive farming. It was only possible in certain circumstances. And what we see is that over hundreds of years, there was always some intensive agriculture going on in tropical Africa, but it didn't spread. There's no cumulative tendency, unlike in uh, East Asia in one way or in Europe in a different way, for intensive agriculture to prevail. It seems to me it's only in the last few decades, and even then, not entirely convincingly, that we've uh, seen evidence of a cumulative growth of intensive agriculture. And as I mentioned, the, the future of it very much depends upon the cost of energy and the cost of water, unless African farmers can find ways of finding low input um, uh, hybrid varieties, uh, something that Paul Richards has studied and of which there may be a source of um, optimism. Um, African farmers through, through their own trial and error rather than necessarily through laboratories, though of course they can help. Um, coming to the, the state, um, it also seems to me the case that there's something analogous, that there have always been states in Africa as far back as we have evidence. But until the colonial period, there was no general uh, formation of states across the continent. And even the colonial states generally were extremely weak uh, in many senses. Um, so what you have is a persistence of relatively, of a, oh, sorry, is the persistence of a mixture of relatively low levels of political centralization plus a certain number of centralized states. And those centralized states have tended to be in roughly the same areas, such as around the Great Lakes of East Africa, where conditions did favor intensive agriculture. And it was possible to produce a, a larger surplus. So I think um, coming to, uh, to Jim's uh, presentation, also to what uh, Joseph was saying about the state, I mean, I very much agree uh, with both of them. I think the two hypotheses that um, uh, James mentioned are, uh, are certainly worth exploring. I think I'll just only add one or two additional comments. One is, there's a lot of literature which would uh, agree that a fundamental problem of state formation was and is a relatively small agricultural surplus. And there is, of course, an exception that proves the rule in the sense that Ethiopia uh, is the, is the, was the site of the uh, longest-lasting uh, state, one of the longest-lasting states in, in world history up until 1974. <coughs> the, the dynasty was in power until 1974. And that was based to a great extent upon plough agriculture, intensive agriculture in the central highlands. And that enabled the Ethiopian state to defeat the colonial invasion in 1896. So I think there is a lot of truth in the argument that political centralization um, could uh, help in, from a defensive point of view. And uh, Joseph didn't mention, but he has an excellent paper arguing that political fragmentation um, before, or at the by the beginning of the Atlantic slave trade was one of the things that facilitated that trade, and I entirely agree with that. Um, on the other hand, I suppose we should mention that, of course, strong states can be used for uh, unpleasant purposes. I think Gerard Prunier is entirely correct that the Rwanda genocide of 1994 would not have been possible in a society where the state had less ability to get its will enforced and acted upon in lots of localities. And 
that is one of the states um, that is in an area that has historically been characterized by long centuries of centralization. I think the other little point I'll just add on, on the state is some of you will know an interesting paper by Bardan, which argues that uh, the best predictor of current income per head is uh, antiquity of state existence in the place in question. Um, but in, in an African context, there is a, a little problem with that, and that is, again, Ethiopia. That on that argument, one would have expected Ethiopia today to be one of the richest countries in sub-Saharan Africa, whereas it's, if it was relatively rich in the 19th century, it seems to have converged on the mean. Thanks. Well, thank you very, all very much, and I'm quite glad to see, to see that you don't all agree. <laughs> Let's open it up to questions and comments, and there's a, a roving, roving mics around, so yes, please. I wanted to ask Joseph a question. Um, you've said that um, the transatlantic slave trade was critical. Um, and I just wanted to know what figures um, you think, um, you know, were in terms of the victims, in terms of people on the African continent, people on the Middle Passage, how many people died as a result of that, and how, how much do you think Africa was depopulated by? Uh, and, and then also, just a very quick question to um, James. Um, you talked about the whole issue of state formation. Um, my people in Nigeria actually made a choice not to have a centralized state um, and actually constructed their societies on the level, to the level that where it was um, village level politics so that they could have a form of direct democracy. And so there is a choice not to create a, a much bigger state. And in fact, there, there is a proverb that said that if you wanted to become king in that area, that you would have to take on everybody's debt. <laughs> okay, responses? Okay, uh, actually the, 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 the question that you raised uh, has become, uh, there was a time it was a very difficult uh, question uh, to answer. Uh, but uh, in recent years, uh, it has become uh, one of the simplest uh, uh, questions uh, to answer about the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, uh, there was a time uh, when uh, we argued about uh, numbers, uh, particularly after with the uh, publication by Philip Cutting uh, in uh, 1969. Uh, somehow, where uh, I always say yeah, that uh, a scholar, where if you stick to your guns, uh, if you simply insist uh, that uh, the uh, historical facts to determine what you say, uh, and you live long enough, uh, you may find uh, uh, that uh, you are going to have uh, the last laugh. Uh, and, 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 and so uh, with, with some element of uh, humility, yeah, I can uh, say yeah, that uh, currently I'm uh, having the last laugh uh, uh, because uh, the, 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 the people uh, who disagreed with me and uh, fought me uh, for so long uh, have now uh, no choice uh, but uh, to welcome uh, close to the figures uh, that I said uh, we are more reasonable uh, than the ones uh, that people we are talking about. Uh, so uh, uh, currently, yeah, we are talking uh, of 12.5 uh, million uh, people uh, that uh, we are uh, taking away uh, uh, from from uh, uh, Africa. Uh, I had uh, talked uh, of uh, 12, I think 12.6 uh, something million. 
uh, in uh, a paper that I presented in uh, 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 1998, uh, and uh, a lot of uh, my friends uh, uh, wanted to eat me up because they thought that number was too large, uh, but the same people that have now come uh, to uh, take 12.5, um, uh, 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 so what's the difference? One percent. <laughs> so the, 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 and that's very important. Uh, the other thing about the numbers, historians are always so smart that when one problem is solved, they find a way of creating another. Uh, it has now become clear where uh, that the Atlantic slave trade was largely, very largely responsible uh, for where the low densities we're talking about. But then an issue has now come up, and the argument is, suppose the Atlantic slave trade did not take place. Would the agricultural resources of sub-Saharan Africa have been adequate uh, to sustain the extra population that would have existed? <laughs> and the argument, which is part of uh, the geography uh, that has been expanding and expanding, the argument is that, oh no, the agricultural resources are so inadequate, are so limited, uh, uh, that uh, the uh, extra population would have died off. They wouldn't have uh, been able to live. Uh, and this uh, has been an argument uh, that uh, came out uh, of a long paper where that uh, my friend in uh, Virginia wrote, uh, Joseph Miller, uh, in 1982, followed uh, uh, with a big book uh, in uh, 1988, uh, 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 talking about uh, the difficulty uh, of um, uh, the African environment uh, uh, being able to sustain large uh, populations. Uh, so again, here is uh, the kind of a uh, debate we have, and I'm almost, uh, again with your humility, uh, uh, going to say here uh, that in the end, the position that I've taken is going to be the one that will be sustained, because uh, the, 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 the price history uh, that I'm working on uh, at the moment uh, is making it difficult uh, for the environmental argument to be sustained, because the argument is that uh, the population will be built up when there is uh, enough rain, and then uh, uh, drought will come uh, and uh, create uh, problems uh, from uh, conflict, uh, from uh, diseases, uh, and then the accumulated population will die off. So you are constantly uh, going back uh, to the same uh, position. And uh, the, the, the price history I'm uh, looking at now, I'm arguing uh, that if that hypothesis is correct, then these price data should pick up uh, these periods uh, during which a uh, subsistence crisis uh, arrives. Then you should see the uh, prices of uh, foodstuffs uh, rising. But I don't see that kind of uh, evidence in the prices that I'm uh, looking at. Uh, and so by the time my current work uh, is completed and published, uh, I'm uh, throwing a challenge uh, to uh, those who argue about the environment uh, to come up and let me see the kind of prices that will justify uh, the argument uh, of up and down movement of population. Thank you. James, do you want to? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think you're, I mean, I was saying exactly that, you know, uh, that, you know, I think if you look at many African societies historically, I take Somalia, that's an extreme example. So Somalia, you know, was extremely democratic. You know, there were no chiefs. There were sultans who sort of negotiated. But some Somali clans, you know, basically decided, well, there was male democracy. So, but Somali clans, if you get the 50% of the population that were women, were extremely democratic by world historical standards. You know. So that was a very democratic, extremely uncentralized. So that was a form of social organization that massively resisted political centralization. Nobody was able to overthrow that in order to create a more centralized power structure. And that's what people wanted. So my whole point is that I think that 
that's very coercive historically, and that's something that was avoided in, in African societies. Yes. Yeah, there was a question over there. Um, thanks. What I'd, what I'd like to do is to get the um, panel to talk about more recent history. And it was for this reason, because perhaps the discussion we've been having up to now presupposes that there's a very simple relationship between a form of state and the economic outcomes. But when we look at um, African economic performance as a region through the 20th century, it's very clear that um, Africa as a region performed as well, if not better, than other developing regions. And it's only in the 1980s that we begin to see a preponderance of growth failures in, Af in African countries. So I wanted to pose the challenge to the panel to talk about, well, what happened during that period that changed the relationship between the state and economic development? Was it all about a centralized state or were there other key key Factors. Thank you. Gareth, do you want to start off? Um, I, I agree with your observation, although I would qualify it in one respect, and that is, um, although African economies were growing uh, in the uh, 60s and early 70s on the whole, and um, Africa <laughs> stu stood reasonably well in international comparisons at that point, um, Africans weren't satisfied with that. In other words, in order to overcome poverty, much higher levels of growth were really sought, uh, which was why it was generally considered uh, a disappointing period at the time, with notable exceptions, such as Cote d'Ivoire. Um, but I think also there was some, uh, there was a lot of truth in the, um, the liberal critique of government policies in that period, particularly in the Anglophone countries. Um, but it's certainly true that it, it was in the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s that Africa's growth tragedy really occurred. If you were an optimist like Ndulu et al., you would argue that you know, from now on, uh, this is going to continue. Um, but it seems to me that the uh, per capita growth rate is still uh, pretty low. And the growth that has been achieved since then has very much been dependent upon primary exports, particularly minerals, not even agriculture. So th I think that there is a, uh, some reason for, uh, for, for concern. But um, the other thing I would say is, if you, if you disaggregate the growth records of the different African countries, and I brought a graph, but I won't show it uh, now, what you see is that most countries that did well in the 60s and 70s did poorly in the 80s and 90s, Ivory Coast uh, being a conspicuous uh, example. Um, and on the whole, the converse was also true. So Ghana and Uganda had a pretty disastrous 70s, but um, have grown pretty well since then, on the whole. Um, and my, uh, something that does keep me awake at night from time to time is the, is the, why, the question, why is it that no country, with one exception, has managed to sustain growth for a long period? Now, I, I don't think the exception is all that significant. I know James takes a different view, namely Botswana, in that uh, it was at independence that the minerals, uh, the diamond discoveries were announced. And if you look, as Morton Yervin has done, at the performance of the non-diamond sectors of the economy, such as the copper sector, they're exactly comparable 
to those of Zambia, which is usually considered to have, be, to have been an economic failure on the whole. So I think it does crucially depend upon diamonds, um, and, uh, but uh, clearly they didn't mess it up, so that, that, that's very good. But I don't draw great comfort from that what, one example. Botswana? Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think Botswana's a, you know, there's, uh, yes, it's diamonds, but, but I think, you know, the, the, the interesting story in, in Botswana is, you know, is, is exactly the, how it was that the, the, the diamond wealth didn't create political instability or, you know, or any of the kind of syndromes associated with the resource curse. And I guess that, you know, uh, my own way of thinking about it, that has a lot to do with, 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 with the sort of his, the historical construction of institutions in the Swana polity prior to the colonial period, and in the way that they were that the Swa, you know that the Swana chiefs and elites were able to kind of preserve those institutions during the colonial period. So, so, so um, I mean, I was going to say about you know this lady's question that I mean, I, you know. I see economic decline as coming sort of earlier than that. I mean, there are countries which are in steep economic decline already in the 1960s. I'm thinking of like the DRC or Burundi, you know, where it, you know Sierra Leone is already in, in economic decline by the end of the 1960s. That yes, there are some places that do better, like you know Kenya or Cote d'Ivoire, but they do that with a very sort of unsustainable kind of you know oligarchic model of economic growth where the people who, you know, if you think about the Côte d'Ivoire where, where Boigny and, you know, and the cocoa growers who sort of managed to take over the country in independence that, yeah, they have an incentive to grow the economy, they're, invest, they're heavily invested in cocoa, but they have this very kind of authoritarian kind of clientelistic model of social control without a kind of workable social contract that, that can't be sustained in some sense. So I think there's these sort of short-run dynamics, but I guess my own view is that 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 the growth decline was sort of inept, was it was kind of inevitable in that case, and that's very same, similar with the sort of Kenyatta, the model of you know growth in Kenya. Uh, again, yeah, sure, growth rates look quite good in the 1960s in Kenya, but I suppose I'd see that as a very sort of unsustainable model that was inevitably going to fall apart at some point. So I guess I see the the seeds of economic decline uh, as you know, already there at the time of independence, of the way they, these institutions emerged at the time of, independ time of independence. Joseph, you want yeah. to? Uh, one important thing that we must try to do is uh, distinguish between growth and development. Uh, you can uh, see a period of growth, and uh, we can always talk about miracles. Uh, we've seen so many miracles uh, uh, in, in, in Africa. Uh, but these miracles never really created the, the kind of uh, conditions, the kind of environment uh, that will sustain uh, the, the, the growth uh, that uh, we observe uh, during uh, the so-called miracles. So we have uh, the Ivorian uh, miracle at a time when cocoa prices were very high, uh, and the same thing about Ghana, and then of course uh, in the case of uh, Nigeria, when uh, in the 70s uh, the, 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 the price uh, of uh, crude oil multiplied uh, several times. But in every one of these instances, the states, See, we will have to come back to the state. The state, the government, 
never used uh, the windfall of uh, these uh, 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 prices to create the kind of environment, the kind of conditions uh, that will transfer uh, uh, the uh, windfall from uh, uh, these uh, areas of diminishing returns subsequently into areas uh, where you can have uh, increasing returns, manufacturing, uh, uh, finance. Now, the, the, that's, that's really where the state comes in. So the question we want to ask, why is it uh, that in every one of these uh, uh, countries, uh, in periods of prosperity, uh, in the so-called miracles, uh, that uh, the windfall was never transformed into an environment that uh, will sustain a growth, as we are able to see in Asia? We've maybe got time for a couple of more questions. Um, there's two, let's take the questions there. There are two at the back and then one down here. Perhaps we could take them, the three at once. Uh, yeah, my question is perhaps a bit silly, but uh, there has been much discussion of the uh, relatively small size of the pre-colonial African state and the fragmentation. Um, my question is, aren't European states, if you look at the size of Europe as a subcontinent, also relatively small? And hasn't Europe also been very fragmented? And yet this does not seem to have significantly affected its development in, in the same way as is mentioned for Africa. There was another question just behind, I think. <clears throat> First of all, I would like to talk about, uh, before I get into these details, uh, I mean, we, are, we were talking about the, uh, how do you call them, uh, colonizing countries, but nobody's talking about the Arabs. <laughs> I mean, they get richer and the poor Muslims, I mean, the poor Muslims are dying. So all I'm saying that they all they they talk about the bad Western European world, but <laughs> I see it that way too because uh, Pakistan is poor; they don't have the money to do all these things. You know, somebody's uh, I mean, uh, so uh, United States, for example, there are a lot of uh, rich black people, uh, brown people, a lot of them. They are rich, they are famous. You know, and you understand what I'm saying. So it's not. You understand. So yes. Um, could you could you do your question quickly? Yes. Yes. More people <laughs> so so uh, first of all, I'm very uh, how do you say uh, sorry that uh, the poor Muslims are dying, and United States has a big sacrifice to keep us safe here right now. All Latin countries are safe because of them. Uh, all the Christian world is actually safe because they are sacrificing them. So it's strange to hear these things, and that's all I want to say. And the question is, uh, <coughs> why, Latin, uh, why um, Africa can't be like Latin America? I mean, they don't have war. <laughs> Africa doesn't, neither, but they could have like tourism, I think. Like, Africa would be more secure to have at least tourism. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Okay, thank you. And then there's one down here. Uh, my question goes to James. I would like to know, can we draw any relation between the institutional legacies and corruption in Africa, especially coming from the extractive states? Because um, those leaders growing up realized that whatever was good was sent to the colonial masters in their countries. 
So when they come into power, whatever is good must come to the master now and possibly to a Swiss bank. Can it be that they learned from what they saw happening there? Possibly. Could I ask you? Since you, since you teach quickly. in Switzerland, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gareth? Per perhaps just on the, the first question. It's certainly true there were many small states in Europe. Um, I think the, the difference, the distinction that's usually made is A, that uh, it's really that the Europeans fought right up to the frontier, and whether the states were small or large, uh, every square centimetre was uh, defined as belonging to a particular state. This would be the kind of Geoffrey Herbst argument. Um, and therefore, the states had to uh, impose their authority throughout their territories to broadcast power, whereas in his terminology, in Africa, they could get away with simply narrowcasting it uh, along uh, particular trade routes, for example. Yeah. Oh, if I could just... I mean, I, no, I think that's... I mean, I think there's lots of, there's lots of potential mechanisms that could link, uh, you know, colonial, the way colonial societies function with post-independent politics. And, and I think that's a, there's a lot of very loose stuff uh, on that topic, but it's enormously sort of understudied, and the mechanisms are enormously understudied and uh, under-theorized, in my own opinion. There's lots of loose claims. I tried to give a very specific example from the Sierra Leone kind of case, which I've been looking at recently. But I think there's many other mechanisms that you could think linking the colonial and, and post-colonial period and you know, perhaps along the lines that you're, you're suggesting. So I think, I think that's, that's an interesting idea. I think it's all very, very understudied. Uh, very quickly, uh, it's a very, very good question, uh, the, the, the issue of corruption uh, that uh, you brought up. Uh, an important uh, point uh, to be connected with that is ethnicity. Ethnicity has been a major wave factor where helping corrupt politicians to survive. Uh, the, 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 the conflicting identities, uh, the, the, the struggle uh, over where, uh, resources. Uh, the, the tendency here is for a corrupt uh, politician uh, who has been caught uh, red-handed, uh, if I may use the, the example of Nigeria that I know best, uh, uh, to say yeah, that, ah, if, I, if, if I'm a Yoruba where politician and I'm corrupt and I'm caught, uh, uh, then I will say, ah, you see, yeah, these Igbos and these uh, houses are after me, uh, and that's why they say I'm corrupt. And this, the, the, the argument changes uh, immediately, yeah, rather than uh, the issue of corruption uh, becoming uh, something to be treated, to be discussed, uh, the victimization of our man. Uh, becomes the issue. Uh, so this is an important uh, element uh, in explaining uh, the, 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 the problem uh, of solving uh, uh, corruption because corrupt politicians always find a way uh, of uh, changing uh, the uh, subject and uh, turning it uh, into something else uh, when they are caught. We can perhaps take one more look. No, they say. No, they say. We're told no. So I'm sorry about that. But can I ask you to join me in thanking all the speakers very much. Indeed.